Welcome back to the Flat Out RC Podcast, episode 12, powering along now. If this is your first time joining us, uh, Flat Out RC is a podcast dedicated to aero modeling recorded out of Melbourne, Australia. My name is Andrew Sill, and I'm the host of this program, which I hope you are going to enjoy, enjoy. So thanks for joining me. We have a big episode, a great guest. It's a gun FPV drone racer. One of the best in the world happens to come from Melbourne, Australia. His name is Thomas Bitmarter. If you've been uh, in the FPV drone racing scene, you know who he is. If you haven't, you are going to find out all about him. Before we get into our special guest, let's take a look at what's been happening in aero modeling news. Well, there's actually a little bit of news this week of some new models or new model that's out that I just noticed, but also this crazy world of Corona. I don't know where we're at. Are we allowed 10 people at the field, 20 people at the field? We had clubs jump on it as soon as the government down here in Victoria said that uh, they're uh, scaling back some of the restrictions because we had a, a mini outbreak. Well, got the double digit figures with some, with some new cases down here in Victoria. Clubs jumped on it next minute. Uh, the VMAA, the MAAA chapter down here in Victoria put an email out saying, well, wait a second, it's 20 people because we're a sport. It's great that aero modeling is considered a sport because we get treated a bit differently. And uh, again, thanks to the MAAA for really pushing that barrow for us. That is the value of the MAAA. They do a lot for us that we just take for granted. But anyway, we are a sport. So uh, as far as I can tell down here in Victoria, it's 20 people at a flying field, which is generally more than enough. Um, you know, I was up at the Atruca Flying Club and I think it was about four of us in total flying, so it's not not that many. To get 20 is, uh, is a good feat for most clubs, especially those out in the country regions. But uh, some of the local sub suburban clubs around the country, you, know, you might get 20 people turning up, half of them be bystanders having a bit of a chat. But uh, we're still heading, uh, we're still kicking along with the hobby, which is great news. Now, uh, Product news. I noticed that a uh, guy who I do want to have on the Flat Out RC podcast, Jace Ducia, has a business. He's a, he's a gun aerobatics guy out of the US. Oh, he's the best in the world as far as I'm concerned. He's just next level. And he started a business called JTA Innovations, which we may have mentioned in this podcast before. And JTA Innovations is basically a business that he designs and uh, gets manufactured these foamy, like indoor kind of style of planes or backyard flyers. And uh, Jace and the JTA team, which is basically Jace and uh, probably a manufacturer in China, have released a new model called the Extra. Now, I love Extras. I'm a big fan of the old Extra aerobatic plane. And this one, it, it ticks all the boxes for me. It, one, it's an Extra. It's got a great outline. It's got a really nice scheme, like a red, gray, blackish, bluish kind of scheme. So that's that's my colors. I do really like those colors. Now, what is this model? Wingspan, 32 millimeter. It's a 32 millimeter, um, sorry, 32 inch, 32 millimeter. That's nothing. 32 inch wingspan model uh, made out of six millimeter EPP uh, foam. So what does that mean? Robust, very lightweight because it's pretty small. Weight approximately is around 175 to 195 grams. So we are talking extremely lightweight. Put a little motor on it, 10 to 15 amp uh, ESC, seven gram to 12 gram servos, some pretty small servos. I think they run, yeah, you basically need about three servos. You need one rudder, one elevator, and then one for aileron. Normally, you just share the aileron uh, on that to keep the weight down. Running an eight to nine inch prop, uh, eight inch for a 3S setup, nine inch for a 2S setup. 
battery 358 on milliamp hour 2s or 3s depending on motor esc combo so we're talking a very lightweight 32 inch wingspan model great for your back fly, backyard flyer look you really only fly it if the wind was uh, pretty light because it would get blown around awesome for indoor as well and of course epp now jay's has been doing a really good job with these planes apparently from all reports they fly extremely well uh now they are represented in uh australia i think it's bone bones rc um is is our man um he uh aaron bones girl up in queensland is is the jta innovations distributor so what will you need you'll need a motor 2304 to 2303 size uh, they're recommending a T-motor. Now, T-motor is one of those motors that has been used in drones. They're, they're quite a good motor. Uh, look, Thomas Bitmarder, who's our special guest, actually sponsored by T-motor, and he's worked with them to develop some motors for himself and uh, for drone racing. And so they've got these smaller motors, which are perfect, really, for uh, these small indoor-style aircraft. So you don't want something too, too big. It's all about weight, keeping the weight down, keep the wing loading uh, down as well. You don't want a high wing loading on these little planes. Of course, when Jace flies it, and there's plenty of videos online, uh, you'll see Jace doing a review video anyway. He makes everything look good. So <laughs> I always say you've got to be careful. These companies, they get the best pilots to fly these planes, and uh, they always look good because they're really good pilots and they can fly anything. But from all reports from other pilots, these JTA Innovations planes are really good, nice and stiff, utilizing carbon rods to, to add stiffness to the, uh, to the airframe, which is always an issue with foam. You have to stiffen them up. Often they put carbon rods through the wings uh, and in this instance I think the plane has got some of those but also has got some other struts to add that rigidity the rigidity is really what you want uh, you don't want a floppy airframe do you nobody likes a floppy airframe but it's, it's, it's interesting this design is very similar to some of the other planes that are uh, foamy indoor planes have been out there uh, which makes me wonder it looks very similar to the multiplex extra but no doubt it isn't uh, Jace wouldn't just copy anything like that. He's a good bloke, good family. And as I said, I hope to get him on the line one day, which we will. No doubt we'll get him on the line one day. So take a look at it. The JTA Innovations. Now, let me just double check. I've got the computer in front of me. I think it's Bones RC. Bones, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Bones RC. Check it out. Um, he's the man to talk to up in Queensland where he's selling the JTA Innovations planes. And he says on his facebook page the extra jd will be coming in our next shipment if you're interested please message us all right so jump onto facebook go to bones rc and message bones and tell him you're interested in one of these um i'm interested if i can get one for free bones thank you jace we're friends give me a model to review well nothing like getting a hack aerobatic pilot to test a model to see if it's any good if a hack can make it look good then anybody can make it look good maybe that's the future hack reviews if i can make it look good then it's good anyway jta innovations extra jd if you're looking for a backyard flyer an indoor flyer especially in these colder months down here in uh, victoria i know it's starting to get a bit chilly uh, then take a look at the extra jd from jta innovations available from bones rc Now is the part of the podcast that I enjoy the most because I get to talk to somebody and not just to myself in a microphone like I'm currently doing at the moment. Now, my special guest today is Thomas Bitmarta. Thomas is a well-known figure in the FPV community, FPV drone racing community. The guy is 
an absolute gun. Uh, if you ever get a chance, jump on YouTube and search up uh, Thomas Bitmart or go to his, his YouTube channel, BMS Web, and uh, they are he's an amazing pilot. Uh, works very closely with his dad, Paul, who's an absolute awesome bloke as well. They're actually the nicest people you could possibly meet, by the, the Bitmarters. And Thomas is an excellent guy who is really achieving some top things in the world of drone racing, not just here in Australia. Basically, in Australia, he wins almost everything that he competes in, but internationally as well. And as you'll hear, he's really moving in that realm of uh, product development as well. That's where he's basically working as a, a full-time professional drone racer and doing product development, which uh, he's very good at. And he, and he's got a little bit of help with his father, by his father um, behind him. But, uh, but Thomas is a great bloke. So... Here's my little chat with the champ, Thomas Bitmarter. Well, joining me today is one of the world's best FPV drone racers in Thomas Bitmarter. Thomas, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. How have you been? It's been ages since we last caught up. It is true. Well, you were in the first edition of Flat Out RC magazine way back in 2017, 18, 2007. Yeah. I can't remember. But you were in the very first edition and... You were doing really big things back then, so I really wanted to embrace the the, the drone racing thing that you're involved in and, and get you in the magazine. So that was awesome. So and we shot a video together out of Greensboro. Yeah, that was good fun. I know. And look, I've been watching you progress through this drone racing uh, thing. We're going to get really into what you've been up to and what you've managed to achieve in in FPV drone racing. But let's wind the clock back. And as I always like to do in these interviews, to start with. How did you get into aero modeling? Okay. So for me, I guess if we really want to go back right from when I was like, as long as I can remember, always been into aviation. My dad used to work for Boeing or when it was uh, Hawker de Havilland uh, and then sort of later when it was Boeing. So I've always had that aviation blood within me, uh, always loved RC models, but never really got into it until the Fermi started to become more popular back in around 2011-ish. Before that, I was mainly just doing paper planes, free flight. Um, but then, yeah, the RC started taking off. And then FPV was sort of this new thing. One of our friends, who was a work friend of dad's, he was sort of trying out this FPV thing. And we thought it was crazy because if you're going to fly through the camera, why not fly a real plane? But then after we actually tried it, it was like, oh, this is actually really fun. Yeah, so, well, from, okay, go ahead. Your dad was into aero modeling, wasn't he? He was really big into it. Yeah, he was right into aero modeling, like pretty much from as far as I know, even in primary school and stuff, he was doing free flight. And then he used to build RC models before he even could afford a radio. And then eventually he got to the point where I think sort of just out of high school, he'd finally saved up enough money to buy his first radio. And that's when he actually got into RC modeling. Well, so you're lucky. Like back then, you know, the kids couldn't afford it and there was no hope in hell our parents were going to pay for the stuff. So it really took a long time. Whereas nowadays... If you've got a, a father that's really interested in aero modeling, he's happy to spend money on you. So you are lucky to have a dad you have got. Well, he's a good bloke. We, we all love uh, your dad, Paul, and he, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about his involvement with your hobby because he's really been by your side all the way. So, so back then you started with some foamies, and and there's some little there's videos of you when you were little Thomas running around flying these uh the, these models, and you can tell you 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 had a love for it back then. Did it come naturally to you? Do you think? Um, as in the flying skill or the love for flying? The flying skill. Ah, uh, no, I wouldn't say it was by natural. I think it was for me, uh, I was into a lot of simulators, like pretty much like in primary school in prep, 
I was using FlightSim 2004. Really? Like, yeah, I've been right into RC Simulation, uh, Novologic F16, Combat Flight Simulator 3. Uh, FMS was the RC sim I would use. Dad had, uh, I think, I can't remember what the radio was. I think it was a Futaba that he'd converted into a, like, uh, like a radio you could connect to the computer back then. Uh, oh. So I was using that just to practice on. So I'd play, like, uh, pit specials and stuff like that in FMS. But always, like, done heaps of that. So I've sort of grown and accumulated knowledge of flight. Obviously, flying in real life is quite different when you've got wind and actual distances to judge. Even the whole concept of like when I was first flying, the idea of flying a few mistakes high, that was foreign to me because in the simulator, you just fly off the deck and, yeah. you know, do whatever the hell you wanted. So a lot of that still took a lot of time, especially to trying to land properly because in the sim, you don't really have any fear of that breaking anything. Um, but with me, it was all accumulated. We never... Even now with the drone racing, we tend to take things a lot slower, tend to take a lot more baby steps, uh, just because that way, you know, more flight time. It might not be necessarily going for, you know, zero to 100 instantly, but the goal is eventually we'll get there. And, you know, you get to enjoy the experience of flying more than, you know, crashing and stuff. Thomas, you said you take things slowly. I've seen the footage of you flying and there is nothing slow about what you're doing. I think it's one of those things, it's like driving a car, you know, where it's like, if you're in control, you sort of, you know, you're predicting what's going to happen, you're anticipating yeah. everything versus being the passenger. But I mean, um, when I'm talking about slow, I guess I'm talking about the act of accumulating skill, Yeah. where it's not like um, a lot of people now, when they try to get into the hobby, they go for like, you know, not just like top of the line racing setup, but like they're going to build the craziest track to begin with, instead of starting from like, you know, just going around a flag or something. Uh, with us, we do tend to take baby steps with, you know, getting into flying. Like if we're trying to, even now with the COVID stuff, right, where I've gone from, you know, having to sort of relearn how to fly again, more pick up that refinement, rather than going straight to a really complicated track. We started with like a really basic track I would have set up back in like 2015, 2016. And from there, we've just like slowly worked our way where to now. I'm back to sort of the tracks I was doing before COVID where they're more complex, uh, really focusing now on accumulating new skills rather than refining the old ones. Yeah. That makes now, sense. So let's just go back to when you first started with the FPV stuff. And again, there's been some videos online on the YouTube channel um, that show you, you know, young Thomas flying FPV. What led you down that path to really almost give up all fixed wing aircraft and, and uh, get into drones? Was it just, that FPV experience that, that drew you in and what you can do with it? Okay, so there were a few factors that led to this. Uh, the one thing, I never fully dropped fixed wing. Like, I mean, it's very close to drop compared to how much I was flying before fixed wing to now. Um, for me, what it was, one, with the mini quads, when they were new, since this is talking about 2014, having something that you could, you know, attach to a backpack and I could take it to the local park before and after school meant that I could get a lot more flight time than I could with the fixed wing, especially FPV fixed wing where it tends to be more long range. Um, we used to go out to like paddocks, like out in Castle Maine, where we knew someone that had a farm there to fly those long range aircraft. But with a multi-rotor, as long as no one's in a park, you can fly, you know, low and slow if you want. If you're at like, you know, somewhere where there's a racetrack, you can go a lot faster. So you can really, you know, if there's somewhere to fly, you can fly there, which is what really made it appealing for me. The other thing was to the fact that we went to the first Melbourne Mortal Road to meet and the guy that organized it stunt double, his flying skill was absolutely ridiculous compared to everyone back then. 
And he was sort of a turning point for me where I was like, I really want to refine this skill. Um, I think just with that and the fact that I had school, my focus just shifted more to the quadcopters and stuff. And then especially down 2016, 2017, where I'm at the business end of high school now. So, you know, exams are pretty full on, studies pretty full on. Uh, there just wasn't enough room to do a lot of fixed wing flying and a lot of the drone flying. So I focus more on the drone stuff. This year, uh, I've been flying my EFX racer a lot more lately. I'm trying to build up to actually getting an EDF Avanti. So I really, really wanted to get to uh, scale EDFs next. Yeah, okay. Well, let's get let's get into the FPV quad stuff that you've been doing. Uh, now, I, I, I introduced you as being one of the world's best, and I know you're a really humble guy, but let's just list some of your your major wins that you've achieved over your your uh, flying career so far. So give me the biggest one, the one that you're probably the most proudest of, uh, and then we'll work down, you know, from there. Okay. So I think for me, the probably the most memorable win would have to be the International Open in Muncie, Indiana in 2017. That was the first ever international race I won. It was right before school exams. So I was studying heaps. I was training in the FPV as much as I could. That one, as far as a story of how I went from getting to that event and actually racing and ending up you know, winning the spec race and the international open, uh, the open class race. That was like the story properly climaxed. It was one of those ones that's super memorable. It was my first international win. So that's definitely the most memorable. I'd say probably biggest two where the race, the actual final race ended with a point two of the second gap between me and second place. And like many, it was close to the end. How many competitors at that event? It gives people sort of understanding what we're talking about. I think that was 300 competitors. Yes. Yeah, so I I you know I, I watched the videos of you at that event and it was it, it, you could probably say it's one of the biggest events going around for drone racing in its day. You know, in 2017 it was probably one of the biggest one, would you say that? Yeah, it was definitely the biggest event as far as the amount of pilots and it's also you had a lot of countries coming in yeah. uh, for that event. Um you had like Korea, uh, a lot of European countries. We had obviously Australia obviously lots of US guys, Canada, all those, a lot of different communities came to that event, especially considering the prize pool wasn't super high for that one too, because that was meant to be more of a community event. The IO that the multi-GP hosts is meant to be sort of like an FPV party. So it's like eight tracks uh, with eight pilots flying any give eight pilots per track flying at any given moment. So it's like 64 pilots flying at a given time. That's massive. So yeah, the whole concept is this FPV party. Everyone's together having a good time. And it's one week of just insane racing, freestyle, just all around fun having. And and that that that's the event that I think really put you on the map, on that FPV racing map. Like everyone knew you after that event, do you think? Yeah, definitely with the international scene. We already had a little bit of a following through the BMS channel during reviews and stuff, but definitely that was a really big turning point where I think that event was a big part into what allowed me to turn pro in the racing, you know, the following year where I ended up taking a gap year to pursue the racing. And then now it's what we're in 2020 and I'm still going. So it's pretty crazy. It's amazing how much stuff's changed. And it's like all the unknowns I had back then. I mean, I've still got unknowns now, but a lot of the stuff I didn't know back then, it's like, wow, it's actually worked out. It's still surreal. I still can't believe it to this day. Well, if you really look at where quad racing's gone, 
from where it was, where it is, it is everything's been a rapid rise it, in the technology that's available to us, to the events, to you know televised events, the money that has been put into it. When you when you really think about it, there's never been that much money put into uh, to an aero modelling activity like there has been with uh, with um, quad racing. So after that event, that uh, that definitely opened up some doors, especially internationally for you. What were some of the other events that that you got invited to? Okay, so other events that I got invited to, so there would be the, uh, okay, well, let me think now of what events, wait, sorry, my brain just potatoed. Okay, here we go. I'm back. Um, so other events I've been invited to since then, I did the DL1 League, which was a team race that was in Europe. It was six weeks of racing. That's the televised and event, isn't it? It's one of the televised. That was televised, yeah. And that was a team race, which was the first sort of proper team race I'd ever done. So that was a whole different dynamic from normal. Um, but that was really cool, you know, hanging out with a bunch of the world's best, you know, we're all sharing ideas and obviously racing too. So we've got friendly rivalries, but also, you know, it's just a fun time hanging out and actually racing for six weeks straight. Mm. Um, other events? Oh, yeah, go ahead. You know, you've been to China as well, haven't you? Yep. Been to the so, uh, FAI uh, Grand Finals, which were was hosted in Shenzhen in 2018 and hosted in Ningbo in 2019. I've been there, uh, you know, for both of the events. Uh, last year, I got second place. I had a mid-air collision off the start, and I somehow clawed my way back to second. So that was pretty. That was pretty ridiculous. I was really happy with that result. Uh, the quad performed really brilliantly too. Um, other events, I've won three Australian nationals, three Aussie Opens. Uh, this year, I did the New Zealand Open, and I managed to take first in that, which is pretty cool. Um, there's been a lot of events. Uh, what is it? The Adelaide Show, uh, Royal Adelaide International. That's right. I that. uh, won that twice. Um, International Open last year, I won that one. And then, yeah, it's been it's been pretty crazy. I'll tell it's you, been what, a good, you are good the most community. humble guy that I've ever met. For you are like you're like Ed and Center in that in Formula One. That you know when Ed and Center would turn up to a race, he went, "Oh, we got no chance," kind of thing. And I honestly believe, especially here in Australia in the racing. Thomas turns up, Thomas is going to win because you sort of like, you are a world-class pilot, but you, you just, you and your dad are just so humble about it and just take everything in your stride. It's just, it just baffles me. But, you know, because all of that competition now has led to you basically doing this full-time, hasn't it? Yeah, well, now it's, I mean, this is what I do. I do also a lot of manufacturing now too, which is something different from when we originally caught up. Yeah. Um, so doing a lot of, design, R&D, um, obviously a lot of the racing presentations. Now the military is hopping on board with uh, supporting the racing and STEM and education. So we're doing a lot of uh, a lot of presentations and, you know, all the heaps of stuff with them. Uh, they had the, I was right, there's the Avalon International Air Show race last yeah, year. that's right. You won that That one. was really big. Uh, won that one, yep. Um, and they also did the race there that was on the actual airstrip. The yeah. proper main runway at the end of it. So they've um, oh, really? they've done some cool stuff. Yeah, there's been a lot of cool stuff that's been happening just across the world, especially in STEM. Yeah, that's true. You know, they're really seeing um, that development in drones for kids being a pathway into other careers, and and I suppose it's it's, it's fascinating that uh, you've you're developing a career around it now. When you say you're developing products, is that uh, under your own name or brand, or you're working with other companies? It's a combination of both. So a lot of it is partnerships. So for example, with my frame, which is sort of the chassis of the drone, yep. that's all my design, my CAD files. 
but that's been manufactured and all of the transport and logistics of it's managed by Impulse RC. Yep. Uh, with my motors, that's also my design. And then T-Motor has done some modifications to improve things, you know, from version one through to where we are now. But yeah, that's my design managed by T-Motor. And then there's also some other stuff that we do in-house with us. There's a lot of projects we do in the background that don't necessarily get our label on them, but, you know, we do a lot of consulting for other companies now. Um, a lot of other really cool projects that people are working on. So some of it we're, like, designing and some of it's more consulting, but, you know, we do the whole range. It's good fun. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, you know, there's a, is your dad involved in this, this, this process as well? He is, yeah. Uh, I do a lot of it myself, but then also dad takes over with a lot of things. Usually, it's probably a bit mean to dad, but I do all the fun ones. And then once I get to like mm-hmm. the last 5% where it's just like cleaning things up, I'm like, dad, can you just finish it? I yeah. want to move on to the next one. <laughs> so, I'll tell you what, your, your dad, you, you, I gave your YouTube channel a plug last in last week's, or not last week, a couple of weeks ago episode, but um, the BMS Web YouTube channel has is, is a great resource, not only to see you and your dad doing some vlogs type stuff, but I, I bought a uh, an Impulse RC Helix and I basically built it watching your dad's video, the step-by-step. It is absolutely phenomenal, that video on how to build the drone, That like the, the build video is step-by-step that literally I have not read the manual. I'm just watching that video on how to build it. And to be honest, I haven't even finished it yet. I'm getting close though. It's been a while, but um, uh, the Helix is the cool frame. Yeah, I've had, well, the Helix was one that you know you flew for a while, but now um, let's just talk a bit about the frame because I'm really interested. In what, what's the model called? The one I'm using now. Yeah. So the one I'm using now is the BMS Racing JS1, manufactured by Impulse RC. So BMS Racing is us, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's my frame design. It's been my brainchild for maybe. Gosh, it's coming up in like two years now. Mm. But then we sort of got to the point where it was we wanted to get more control over the frame design and sort of do some more stuff, uh, really customized, really bespoke for what we need for specific races. Like say the FAI Shenzhen race, we need to carry you know a crazy HD system that no one's ever seen before. So we needed that agility to move, and that led to us developing a production version of the JS1 that now Impulse RC does all the manufacturing for, but it's all our design. Well, let's just. There's a lot of people listen to this podcast that might not be into to quads, but when you talk about a frame and the development work that you're doing, what are you really looking for in a frame now? Like, give give people some understanding about the characteristics of a frame and and how they might differ with different designs and and what you look for. Okay, so with frame manufacturing, there's a few things you're going for. One, you want as high stiffness as you can get, so that obviously things aren't flexing because you don't want motors twisting in flight with the high torques and that kind of thing. Uh, The flip side of that is if you go too stiff, then you'll end up with a frame that's going to snap really quickly, right? It's either assembled or it's broken. So there's a fine line with that. Other things too, you got aerodynamic drag you got to focus on. With a quad, one thing that's different from, say, a plane is that a plane, for the most part, will always fly in a straight line direction, right? Air is always traveling over it in one way, unless you're doing weird high angle of attack things. For the most part, that's true. With a quadcopter, you're facing all kinds of different angles. So airflow is never really traveling over it the same, meaning that you sort of have to balance it. You could almost do it based on the track, but we tend to sort of use the general metrics of, you know, what a multi-GP track is, for example, or the FAI's track styles to sort of come up with a nice balance of good straight line aerodynamics versus cornering. Um, Also weight, 
that's a big thing you got to focus on. Uh, with these, we comfortably pull over 12 Gs in corners. So, you know, being able to make it lighter means that you save quite a bit of battery in each corner. And then it's sort of how you package things too, where you put the parts, uh, trying to keep as much weight in the center as possible so you have as little, uh, what's it called again? My brain is, what time is it here? It's pretty late, so my brain's a little <laughs> tired. But, uh, oh man, I was talking about this before with a friend. Oh, the words just totally escaped me. Well, what about... Um the dimensions of the frame is there a standard that you need to design to is you know there's a with the events that you go to they saying you know the arms must be this long and no more and is there a weight limit that kind of thing uh some events have a weight limit usually a lot of it's pretty open-ended for the current race quads usually it's more dictated by the current gear that's available uh some things that we have to conform to is like say for example if it's a race that uses five-inch propellers then obviously it needs to be able to carry five inch propellers and then to spin those you'll need obviously a certain size motor that has enough torque to spin that up. And then with that, it's going to have a certain amount of current draw, which then will determine the ESC and therefore the battery driving the whole thing. So for me, like with the JS one, I started with the battery and worked my way out on that design, but it all depends really on what you're trying to achieve and what the focus is. Um, and it's then, yeah, trying to balance durability versus performance and lightweight and just trying to find sort of the best balance of everything. What um, There's been sort of a shift in, in batteries, hasn't there? Like originally, everyone was running sort of a, a, a we were talking about five-inch quad here now. They're talking, they were running like uh, 4S packs. What are you up to now? Are you running, is 6S sort of the norm now? Uh, 6S and 5S are the norm. They tend to be a lot more consistent because of the fact you got extra cells. So if you have, say, one cell that's on its way out after like 100 cycles, that means you've only got like a fifth of the power that's not working properly versus a quarter. So, oh, sorry, on six cells, it's a sixth. So it's uh, a lot more consistent, especially throughout the entire lifespan. Um, now the technology's gotten a lot better too, where the 6S batteries are basically the same power density as what a 4S was before. Uh, and even better now. So there's almost no real reason to go back to four, four cell, especially with the high current draw. And is the speed uh, is the speed better on a 6S than a 4S? Uh, theoretically, they should be identical if you have everything spec the same. So if you have the KV, proportional, et cetera. Uh, in real life, there was a little bit of variance to begin with because of the way the batteries were manufactured and the way the motors were manufactured. But I'd say now for the most part, it is the same. Um, having said that, because of other efficiency gains in you know, better motor development, better prop development and stuff, um, the Helix we had before, for example, uh, when I had that thing propped up for straight line speed, I could hit about 180 kilometers an hour. Uh, that's with proper straight line props. My current race quad configured for more cornering does 220 comfortably. Okay. So that's not with a straight line prop. So I'm not sure what you get if you, you know, stuck like a bi blade on to get more speed. Hmm. But the speed's a lot more different. And the fact too that it's a lot lighter means that for this equivalent flying to what we could do before, you're drawing a lot less power. But obviously now that we can go faster, we push it harder and therefore now we're drawing about the same rate. That's right. That's it all. You know, the technology improves and so does everybody else. Now, what, what's, a, what's a typical flight time on one of your 6S packs and your 5 inches quad? When we're racing, about a minute. A minute? Yeah, that's, that's, that's hammering the batteries. It's pretty crazy. It's funny. I've been cruising and I've done like, you know, 10 minute flights and stuff, just, you know, chilling, just yeah. having a fun time. But then, yeah, you open it up and you'll drain that battery really quick. What, what size? How many? What's, what's a milliamps on it? 
where I'm using now for racing 1300 milliamp hour six cell batteries yeah. and they weigh about 200 grams. Okay. So that's just crazy. Uh, you know, and I know with quads, you, you do hammer batteries. How long is a battery typically lasting you before it starts to get the, uh, get the puff going? Um, it depends on the manufacturer with tattoo. I've been using their V3 chemistry now since the end of 2018. And I've got some of those packs that are still running today. We do tend to take care of our packs a lot though. Like when I fly, I try to land at 3.8 volts a cell. So yeah. that helps a lot. If you push the battery down to like three volts or below, the tattoo chemistry is pretty fragile. So usually it won't quite come back the same. But if you keep it like around the 3.6, level, or in my case, I just go to 3.8, then yeah, I've had batteries that are gone two years and still going fine. Um, they're not quite the same. They've got maybe 80% of what they had before as far as initial punch. But, I mean, they're still kicking it. So I've got batteries from last year that I've actually raced and ran low, and they're still going fine. So they've been really good. We're still uh, yet to actually have killed one. So pretty crazy. And I'll tell you what, I've seen all the batteries you, you charge. I've never seen someone with so many batteries. But I'll tell you what, when you think about it, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the, the fixed-wing flying community uh, don't really appreciate what, FPV drone racing is is helping them to achieve. So, you know, you, you guys out there with your racing quads really rely on good quality battery packs, which is forcing the manufacturers to, you know, compete against each other to improve, you know, their chemistry, etc. which can then also come across to fixed wing as well. Because I don't think we've ever seen such an emphasis on, on you know, the performance of, of a LiPo as we do when uh, we get into FPV drones. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's been really cool seeing some of the, especially the people in university that have to do like those assignments, you know, where they get to do like an outback drew challenge or something, mm. and seeing now what they're able to put together versus what was available four years ago, six years ago. Like mm. it's totally different. Um, even one of our friends, he made a wing wing recently, which is like a scaled down, uh, was it FX sixty one Phantom, which is what my dad used to use for long range FPV, and that thing was a one point six meter wingspan workhorse, right? Mm. Like, I think if you're really uh, careful on the throttle, you'd get, like, just over an hour flight time. Mm. This little wing-wing that's got, like, an 800-millimeter wingspan gets 45 minutes flight time, no dramas at all, and it's got the FPV and all, full long-range capable, and it's like, man, that was literally impossible a few years ago. And now it's just like you can just buy the parts off the shelf and build it, so... Yeah, well, it's really yeah. impressive. And I think the other area of really massive technology gains is in, in flight controllers, which... We're now starting to see some come into fixed wing aircraft, but tell me a bit about you know flight controllers and how they've changed over the years. Okay, this is actually a really fun one for me because last year we did tons of development in flight controllers, a lot more in the software. But then now, like this year, I'm actually developing my NFC, which is really really fun. But um, yeah, so with flight controllers, probably the big thing that's changed is the processing power. Uh, before, when we started, we were using F-Zero chips, and I think we were using 1K uh, PID loops. Now we're using F-7 chips with 8K PID loops, so we're running the PIDs eight times faster. Um, the gyro filtering's improved a hell of a lot to handle all of the electronic noise that we've got from the ESCs and the motors, you know, blasting all this noise out right next to the flight controller. Uh, software has improved ridiculously. The amount of iterations they've done to software to make the pit controls work better, improved filtering, 
Uh, the latest thing that I've been playing with is battery side compensation, where it'll read the voltage and adjust your power output so the throttle works exactly the same every single time. Yeah, this is crazy. Um, it's ridiculous the stuff they've done. Well, I've seen some of the fixed wings. Oh, yeah, go ahead. If, for anyone that doesn't know what a flight controller is, because remember, there's a few people don't know anything about drones. The flight controller is basically a little electronic board that sits on your drone that that helps manage uh, the balance of the of the quad, you could say, and all your different, you know, uh, your pitch, your yaw, and that kind of stuff as well. And so you've got this little circuitry, which has got a lot of smarts, and uh, we're correct to say it's got accelerometers and things like that in it to, to understand the position of the drone, and then you can adjust all those settings like we do with dual rates and expo and all those kind of things. You can add those in the control so basically what you're saying is we've gone from like the old xt ibm copy computer back in the 80s all the way up to you know powerful intel processors now kind of thing into into drone racing what how has that changed the way in which you fly uh i think what's really changed is just how precise you can be it's one of those things where we talk about like you know when you feel something's perfect and it can't get better yeah and then you try something and then you're just like mind blown like mm. how did perfect just get better mm. that happens like i feel like every three months in this hobby mm. like since we started right through to now there's always something new that's sort of like oh my gosh how was i living without this before mm. um another thing you'll see i guess now compared to before is the rate at which people can improve right off the bat from going from nothing to fpv racing where because the quads are so much more controllable, you don't have to worry about the props winding down and stuff because it's got the uh, active braking and stuff. Like, it pretty much becomes the point where you can guide it like a vector in 3D space. Hmm. That's pretty much what you're doing at this point, where you're just telling it what degrees of movement you want, how much throttle you want, and it will pretty much do it every single time, uh, with the exception of going through prop wash, but prop wash is prop wash. Yeah. Um, what that means is that a lot of that getting around how to make the quad work properly and you know if you you have to be careful with the way you cruise through prop wash and that kind of thing it can ignore a ton of that which means that the focus becomes purely on getting pilot skill and so you'll find people in a year's time getting to like ridiculous levels of skill um you know through the simulators and stuff too but especially with the fact that the drones themselves just fly a hell of a lot better than what they used to yeah. and you can do a lot more that you couldn't do before yeah no definitely i think it's it's amazing to just see that 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 the rapid pace of development. Do you, do you think it will start to slow down though? I think eventually parts of it will slow down, but I'm not sure if it ever will get super slow, especially with the amount of new technology that's coming out, right? Like I'm not talking just in FPV, but just in general. There's heaps of new breakthroughs coming out in, you know, quantum computing and all sorts of other ridiculous things. So I think by the time this starts to slow down, where we've sort of got a basis of, you know, this is how a quad should look, this is how the aerodynamics should work, et cetera, like there's going to be something new, I reckon, ready by then. There's already so much new battery technology coming around, uh, new ways of doing better processing. It's just, it's changing way too quick, I think, to be for sure. You know, you've got digital FPV systems coming out now. Um, yeah, I reckon that, that could... I feel like right now those aren't really ready for racing yet, but the fact that they're even here now is pretty ridiculous. So I think, yeah, basically you don't know where it's going to go. It's going to, I think it's going to keep picking up. Um, yeah. Well, I think the, uh, you know, just talking about the, the FPV technology and, and the rapid change, 
that you would have seen definitely i've experienced it as well that and you talk about the advent of digital and i suppose we knew it was going to come we knew it was going to happen you know if, if we, we used to get we'd get these goggles and we'd have to set up the frequencies and everybody had to make sure they went on the same frequencies and all this kind of stuff and it was a bit like traditional model aircraft where we once had crystals in our radios now went to 2.4 gig we didn't have to worry about any of that and definitely knew that that was going to be the future now and then the picture quality early on through the FPV gear was, you know, some of it was pretty average and it, it gradually improved, improved, improved to the point where we've got pretty much, you know, HD definition now with, uh, you know, especially like with the D- new DJI system. What are you running with goggles now currently? Me? So I'm currently running the HDO version ones by Fat Shark yep. with a TBS Fusion module and for the FPV system on the drone. I'm using a Foxio Predator V4 camera and also a TBS Unified Pro 32 Nano. Yeah. Now, so, that go- goggle is not, that's not the latest, is it? Is there a new version? No, there's the HDO2s. Um, I haven't jumped to them yet just because I haven't got my hands on one yet to try. Um, they've done a few changes where the actual lenses are closer to your eyes and also the field of view is a lot bigger. Mm. So there is a clarity gain, but... I'm not sure how I'll go with having a bigger screen and not sort of having a more focused vision. Um, the other thing is too, because the lenses sit closer to your eyes, my eyelashes right now are really big. And so like already, like after every flight, I have to clean my lenses, having it closer might be a bit too uncomfortable for me. Yeah. So well, I'm not I, sure yet. I, I actually have to put corrective lenses into my FPV goggles because my eyesight's so bad and, and it works. <laughs> it is amazing how it actually works. But um, it's interesting that, you know, and I've known you over the years and you haven't always gone to the latest and greatest in goggles because basically for you, if you're happy with something, you seem to, to stick with it for a while. Would that be true? Ah, uh, yeah, definitely. I think with racing, once you get comfortable with something, it's not always easy to adapt, especially with goggles where it's something that's like, you know, that's your vision. That's your perception of 3D space through a 2D lens. So it's like having that change can really change how things feel. Um, the HDOs was a big game because we went from normal LCDs to OLEDs, meaning that you had a hell of a lot more clarity with all of the cameras. Um, the bigger field of view was a bit of an adaption, but now I think I'm better off with it. Um, I'm just not sure I want to go bigger at this yeah. point. So have it's you, one of those... Have, I got hit. have you tried the DJI goggles? I have. Uh, we've got DJI system. Yeah. So they're... Um, they're pretty good. I think for fixed wing, they'll be really big. Mm. For the FPV racing, I think besides the big events like the FAI championships or, you know, some of the racing leagues, I'm not sure it's really ready yet. Um, just because it does still have a few bugs where sometimes the vision will totally freeze and there is still more latency. Mm. Um, it can drop to low latency sometimes, but it's varying the whole time. And like with the system we've got now, it's really consistent and consistently low. And standard definition is just really bulletproof, right? You get yeah. static and stuff. You're not really going to have your vision just stopping on you. Yeah. So for racing, definitely standard definition is still the way to go. Um, for your more like chill freestyle, just having fun in the park, though, I reckon the DJI system is really good. Um, the only other problem with their system is that for races, if you want to pipe out the actual footage off of the goggles so that you can stream it to, say, you know, a live stream or for judges to view, make sure the pilot's actually doing what they meant and we're not skipping anything. Mm. Um, you have to pay DJI like 10,000 USD and fly out to their employees to manage it. Oh, really? So, 
Yeah, so it's like not many people are going to be able to afford that as like a normal club, right? Yeah. No, no, so it's happen. really, at this point, it's more reserved for those big events, I think. Um, but, you know, it's, the point is the technology is here. So. What transmitter are you currently running? Uh, as in radio control? Yeah, yeah, transmitter. Yep. Ooh, okay. I've got two at the moment that I'm using, um, but I'm mainly using my Futaba 18SC at the moment yeah. uh, with a Crossfire module. And then I've also got the TBS Tango 2 which is like super portable. The gimbals are really good. Um, it's think, I mean, my Futaba was like 1,500. At the time, that was what we needed uh, for the better link and also for the, um, what do you call it? The actual internal uh, refresh rate of the radio is really fast. And so mm. it syncs better with Crossfire. Yeah. Um, but all those developments that we worked out, we ended up applying to the Tango 2. And so now the Tango 2's internal performance is actually pretty much on par as far as crossfire goes yeah uh and the gimbals are really close too so i'm really really happy with what they've done with that yeah so it's interesting with with that racing and, and all that gear that you're talking about you're always talking about reliability because you are you know stressing the, the the gear to its limits often in, in the races you want something that's going to be reliable like a race car almost you want a nice reliable race car and something going to perform at a, consistently at a high level and uh you just see that development of, as we've been saying has been uh, been crazy but obviously that also kicks on the development because everyone's trying to trying to get that advantage but let's just have a look now at your flying that um it was interesting that when i first interviewed you you were you know it was a few years ago or you know, could be even up it's over three years ago now uh or close to three years ago now that i um had a chat with you at the time you'd come off from a year of trying to fly every single day now tell me a bit about when you were 16, what your, where your mindset was at and, and what you were doing to, to become a master at FPV racing? Um, for me, when I was like 16, especially having school and that, my idea was that because I didn't necessarily have a lot of time to do like full day sessions, I was just going to try and accumulate as much flying as I can. Um, regardless, flying's fun, right? So, mm. you know fun thing to do but then also from the racing standpoint it meant that i wouldn't have to really worry about adaption so much just because i'm sort of always warmed up and you know it's just having those groups sort of more group sessions means that you're just accumulating a hell of a lot of data you know as far as yourself goes mm. like you know how you're taking a corner and how to modify it the cool thing about fpv in general especially the racing is that the feedback's instant right you put an input in you see the results on your screen did it work did it not work so that really opens the door for a hell of a lot of improvement. Um, actually, this year, I think is probably, like, once we get going again, going to be heaps of flying for me because we're not racing as much this year overseas. I've been doing a lot more practice lately, especially since now, you know, we're able to go to uh, clubs and stuff again. Yeah. And the, well, so your regime back then, what, what did it look like? Uh, back then, it was pretty much uh, with school. I would just get as much schoolwork as I could done. Um, my lunch times I would use for all my homework and stuff. And then when I get home, I'd usually try and get a few packs in uh, on the way home before I sort of start doing all my schoolwork and stuff. Uh, if I couldn't do that, then on the weekends, I would try to like keep them as free as possible so I could do full day training sessions. How many how many flights do you reckon you put in that year back when you were 16? Ooh. Gee, it would have been a lot. I have no idea. If I had to... Hmm. Well, let's so put it this say, way. How often were you charging packs? Um, Pretty much every session. Well, every day. You, you, you always every had... day I'd be pretty much charging. Yeah, like not maybe not in 2017 because 2017 I had yeah. 
uh, high school. Yeah, but still, busy. every week, I would do, like, say, in 2016, I would maybe do 10 to 20 batteries a day, but maybe, like, two, three times a week. Yeah. Uh, in 2017, it was probably flying only once a week, but it would be a full day session of, like, 60 packs or something ridiculous. Yeah. So... And did you, yeah. and it, it, with all that practice, could you, was there, did your improvement, was it, was it rapid or was it a very slow sort of process, gradual thing that you're just getting better month by month? Um, I'd say overall it's gradual, but it's one of those things where you sort of have jumps, right? Like you'll sort of, it's almost like you'll fly, you'll walk away from the flying and then sort of in that process of distancing yourself, you sort of have those mental breakthroughs of how to improve. And so then you'll sort of like, even without having touched the six, you've just jumped up in skill set because you've sort of unlocked something new in your mind. And then you'll sort of hang, sort of plateau at that for a bit. And then eventually you'll sort of walk away again. You'll have that next breakthrough. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you have heaps of breakthroughs. Sometimes it's only a few, but, you know, we're still having breakthroughs even now. And so Were you, during that this phase, were you, did you, was it the practice structured or was it just go and have a fly and see if you can get around a course or were you focusing on particular things? um always focusing on particular things well actually not always sometimes it would just be pure fun sessions um one thing i've always tried to do is make sure that i never lose the fun factor in this right because i think you know if you've lost the fun then what's the point so i try to like always keep it fun but it is still structured um i do enjoy the act of learning new things and you know pushing myself so you know uh my latest youtube video i posted on the bms thomas channel um, that was me focusing on my dive gates, basically. It was just, that's my beds. <laughs> um, there was a specific dive gate entry that it was just sort of when I was, you know, coming out of sort of lockdown and stuff, I like really was rough with it. And I was like, okay, this day I'm feeling like a well rested. I'm focusing on getting this right. So I set up a track specifically to target that one thing that I knew I had trouble with. Um, a lot of it's focused like that. Uh, sometimes I do just do chill sessions. Like today, I just flew four packs in a normal park just to sort of keep the sticks moving, enjoy the beauty that is a park and just the love of flight. Um, but then, you know, coming back into this week, it's looking like the weather's going to be good. So, yeah, I'll be sending it on a racetrack for sure. And, and nowadays, you know, you're doing this pretty much full time, aren't you? Yeah, I'd say now I'm flying a lot more packs in volume than what I was back then just because I don't have school. And, you know, this is sort of my job. So I'm doing a lot of testing and... Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So the development continues. Now, I, I I know you were looking at going to university and 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 maybe doing a course, but you know, what what's what's next for you? Do you think? What's next? I think definitely a lot more of the design and R and D. I really really enjoy that as much as the racing. I think that you know the flying for me. Obviously, that was what really got me into it to begin with. But the engineering side was always something I had an interest in. And in the position I'm in now with the companies I get to work with, I really want to push that further. And not just the drone racing, but I really want to get back to fixed wing too. Um, sort of everything. I just, I love engineering. I love the flying. Obviously, I'm going to keep the flying as the focus, but I really do sort of want to branch out into other technologies and just exploring what's possible. Um, there's a lot of stuff to explore in this, you know, in this world, and I'm just loving it. So. Well, I, I think... Um... Yeah. You know, we mentioned your dad, and Paul's been by your side all the way, and he's he's just a, as much a fanatic as you are, really. I think with with all of this, and you, you you're on video a lot with him, and he's a great a great guy. Your dad, very supportive. Uh, but one thing I've noticed 
when the two of you are together, you seem to be very, very methodical in your approach that, you know, when we were at Greensboro that day, you were doing um, battery tests and, you know, almost like blind battery tests. So your dad had a, had a theory, you know, that I'm not going to show you the battery. I want you to fly it and you tell me what you, what it's like. And he would document it all. And you, you're very methodical in your, in your approach, even though you may not think you are, but you seem to be very, very methodical. Is that something that, uh, that that you thought you know you, you was an approach that you adopted uh, organically, or is it something that you were very uh, mindful of? Um, I think I've just always been that way, to be honest. I probably watching a lot of shows like Scope when I was younger and Beyond Tomorrow. Uh, that's all sort of brought me up, especially coming from obviously Dad's engineering background too, to sort of approach things that way. Where it's sort of, I mean, you know, besides when you're actually on the racetrack and it's you know lights are green, you know, go for it. Um, I've always tended to be that way where even like, um, you know, like lately I've been trying to sort of spend a bit more social time with my friends and sort of gotten into our first person shooters again, where even with that, I'm doing aim training and stuff, right. Mm-hmm. Just because I think it's just in my nature. That's how I approach things sort of, um, more carefully, more cautiously, but I know I enjoy the process of setting things up and planning things out and data collection and the learning process for me. That's just as much fun as the end result. Well, it's good to see that you, you've transitioned from being a gun pilot now to really helping out with the technology side of things. Where, What do you think's next for FPV drone racing? I think next, definitely getting into more the mainstream. Uh, we can already see that now where a lot of people are a lot more familiar with, you know, DRL, DCL, and sort of what a race quad is isn't so unfamiliar anymore as what it was before even if someone's just heard of it um we had it before we're a plumber was uh working on some plumbing in the house and they're like uh they saw a drone stuff and they're like oh do you know there's a drone racer in australia and he's like been to here here and here and he's worked with the military and it was like so already it's sort of at that point where it's like it's a lot more known where even if they don't know all about the specifics of the technology you know what a flight controller is whatever like the concept of racing a drone around a track like a car exists with people. Um, I think now the next step is just showing people now how accessible it is and sort of um, breaking that fear of I'm going to break something or whatever and it's, you know, failure. Like make people lose the fear of failure a lot more, which we're sort of seeing a lot more through the internet already just in other things. But now in drone racing, we need to show people that, you know, it's a it's a fun community. It's a cool community to hang out in. Come join us. Yeah, you know? well, look, it's definitely a truckload of fun. Uh, now, a question for you. So what's next for you, do you think, in this drone racing, especially in the racing side of things? We've been shut down. It looks like this year is pretty much a, a write-off as far as international events. But, you know, how much international flying are you looking at, at doing in the future? Um. I'm not planning on stopping at all, pretty much. Uh, I'm loving it right now. I'm really enjoying the position I'm in. I'm flying for a Korean team, uh, which is really, really cool. It's been a whole new experience hanging out with them and, you know, just sort of forming new friendships with that. So, yeah, next year, uh, I probably, I'm going to probably dial back the R&D and the development work a little bit just because this year I've had so much time to focus on it already. So next year, my plan is to really knuckle down on the racing again and just sort of, try and go to as many places as I can, do as much racing as I can, and just sort of hang out, have a good time. Um, I think that's probably my more immediate thought where, you know, especially, you know, hopefully exiting this COVID stuff, there will be more rents and stuff already. You know, they're talking about how the Australian National is going to be planned and all that. So I've got that to look forward to. 
Um, in the meantime, when the borders open up, um, I'm ready to go to every state, hopefully and do like a coastal, you know, visiting all the big cities and doing races with everybody. That's something we really want to do. Um, so for me, it's sort of that, just sort of almost going back to the grassroots racing and just sort of the core of the love of flying, I think, uh, immediately. Obviously, in the longer term, there's all the development stuff. Uh, I've been playing with supercapacitors. It's sort of a really fun experimental thing just to see what I can do with them um, in FPV and just in general with like slope sorrows and stuff because they could, they're good fun. Um, but it's just, yeah, sort of exploring this whole space and what it offers. The cool thing about the, you know, this community in drone racing and, you know, UAS in general, RC, uh, it's all connected and there's so many different avenues you can chase. Uh, I really want to get into scale EDS, um, not necessarily competition or anything, but just, trying to make really cool displays with them. I want to eventually hook up a uh, head tracking system to one of those and do like a full on uh, coordinate display with my dad. And like, you know, you see with the blue angels. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Like that's, that's sort of. That's what you need. Like uh, I, it's very, very hard to do a, a uh, like a formation flying routine when you're flying line of sight, but flying uh, FPV with a head tracker is the solution. And, oh, you'd get a gig all around the world flying at different events. I'd pay you to turn up, blow some smoke out the back of a jet, and you have you and your dad, no team bitmata, BMS, let's go. That's It'd be actually so cool. You know what's crazy? There was a group that was doing it in 2012. Oh, really? Yeah, there was uh, a Russian crew. Like, they're using security cameras and everything, <laughs> and they had three EDF MiG-29s with working instrumentation and everything. Yeah. The videos are gone off YouTube now, but that was like a massive inspiration for me. So like one day I'm going to return to that. You've got to do it. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things that's too cool to not do. Yeah. Now I always end up with this final question. I ask every guest, which is what has been your favorite model so far? And that could be anything fixed wing or drone. Ooh, favorite model. Okay. So I'm going to go for drones right now. Uh, my exact setup right now, which is my BMS Racing JS1 with uh, my Goldline motors, uh, Hobbywing 20x20 ESC, Talon F7 Fusion, uh, Foxia Predator Micro with Crossfire, and well, oh, wide new props. Uh, so there are they're a little secret, but yeah, with those props, absolutely beautiful. Uh, Tattoo 6S 1300 milliamp hour battery for drones. 100% my favorite setup right now. It's just you can do anything with it. Uh, flying in a park. You can be chilling in some trees, doing some cool gapping. And then you want to go to the other side of the park, blip the throttle, you're on the other side. You can play with another set of trees, whatever the hell you want. On a racetrack, super fast. Uh, you can go cruising with it. Absolutely love that. It's well, it's my daily quad, I guess. If you have like daily driver cars, it's my daily driver quad. Um, in RC aircraft, my favorite RC model I've ever owned. I think I've got two. I've got my Tech Sumo, which was my FAV wing. And I just did tons of hours on that thing. Um, that thing's been like with me everywhere within Victoria and it's gone through gates and I've just done heaps of cool stuff with that, learned heaps of flying with that. Um, my other one, which I didn't have for very long, but I absolutely miss it. And I that's what sort of gotten me back onto this EDF thing was my Red Arrow. Uh, I'm not sure what the brand was, I don't remember, but it was like a 650 millimeter wingspan and I think it was a seven blade EDF. So it was like, it was little, it was twitchy, but it sounded really cool. And I could fly it in some parts, which is really fun before I uh, was a member of GMAX. So. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Now you, you know, where can you, you mainly found at Greensboro. Is that where you're doing most of your flying at the Greensboro club? 
Uh, Greensboro Model Aircraft Club, uh, which also is MMRC now. MMRC has moved there now. Uh, Eastside FPV, which is currently based in Llewellyn Park. Uh, but I think they're also scouting out some new locations now too, which is pretty cool. Um, hopefully that works out. Um, yeah, and also just other parks in general. Um, we usually, you know, we'll hang out with people, you know, on the weekends and stuff and just, you know, have fun flying. Um, and then, yeah, in the week weekdays, it's all training and sending. More flying, but for business. Yeah, yeah. it's good. It's a, it's a really surreal thing right now. It's sort of, it is sort of hard with that blur between business and sort of fun. Mm. But, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, there's nothing quite like it, right? So, yeah, yeah I absolutely love it. Uh, it. It's good. And it's amazing because, you know, I haven't spoken to you for a while and to see where you're at now, knowing where you were and finishing school and all that kind of stuff, that to think that you're basically a pro drone pilot. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's luck. I think that... You and your dad set yourselves up for this kind of role in in where you what you were doing in the hobby with that emerging quad market that it was sort of makes sense for a lot of companies to work with uh, both yourself and your dad really. Uh, not only are you a great pilot, so that means you you really know what works and and uh, can really good give good feedback on on the gear, but you really need someone that's that's living and breathing it all the time to really develop it. So. Oh, look, you know, there's there's one thing about you and your dad. Not one person has ever said a bad word about the two of you. Like, you guys are the nicest people known to man. Like, if anyone met, went up to Thomas, he would give you the time of day. If you had, if you wanted some advice on something, they'd give it to you free of charge and be open and honest about what they're doing. You don't hide your drone specs, do you? You, you tell everybody, you know, if you want, to, you want to know what I'm flying, well, this is what I'm flying. You know, is that has that always come naturally to you? Oh, uh, I think so. I think it's also the product of how amazing our FPV community is. Like, I think, I mean, a lot of people do, I think, say, you know, that they're really nice stuff, which I really appreciate. I absolutely love it. But I think this community in general does bring that where it comes from the DIY culture of, you know, you'll even be like, say, uh, FAI race, which was last year, end of last year. Um, I can't remember what happened. It was just before a race and I was missing something. I can't remember what it was. But I had like five people come up to me ready to go to help me out, right? And they're all competitors, right? Um, and likewise, someone else, um, their stuff got stopped, lost in like customs or whatever. And people just lent them gear so they could race. So it's like, I think it's the nature of this community is just ridiculously kind and awesome. And so, you know, it's one of those things where I think sort of, you know, what goes around comes around. And so everybody supports each other. And then, you know, we sort of grow together as a community. So it's really, it's a beautiful thing we've got. And I'm really happy that, as it gets more professional and, you know, prize pools get bigger and it gets more serious that we seem to still be keeping that. And I really do hope that never goes away because it's one of the beautiful things about this where not just the flying and, you know, the cool tech, but the people themselves right now are absolutely awesome. So, Well, I think you're correct. I think it's more than just flying a quad. I've always said it's a movement Uh, and it's it's a younger movement, which is great to see. Um, Do you think that, that many... You know, there's a lot of people like at that NAAA level think that a lot of the people flying quads may eventually come and fly fixed, you know, traditional fixed wings, fixed winged aircraft. Do you think that that's something that is realistic? Um, I've seen it happen with MMRC moving to GMAC now. A lot of the guys have gotten into RC. A lot of them really love the 3D, like your profile homies and stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, we've had a couple get to scale though, and we've got a couple too that are pursuing Dr. Pants, uh, which has got me back into it. You know, I've obviously got people that love speed. Someone built a rare bear recently. Yeah. Don't know how they got the parts for it, but they built a really nice rare bear that um, absolutely, you know, holds. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it definitely we've got that sort of conversion happening. See, that's, where that's interesting. I think that 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 merger of a drone club with a traditional flying club to share that space is such a good thing to see. I remember when they posted up on Facebook, you know, what do you think we want to do this, this merge? I was like, hell yeah, that is, you know, there's a lot, a lot of flying clubs have actually got space for, you know, some FPV quads to, to race around because they really don't need that much room, do they? No, they don't, especially for normal tracks. Like, unless it's some grand final massive track, usually you don't need that much space at all to fly. Yeah. So I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think that more clubs need to embrace that side. And, you know, you might get another 30 members as a result of just saying, hey, guys, we've allocated a little plot of land that we've got to spare that you can knock yourselves out, go, go for it. You know, I think it makes so much sense. So well, well done to Greensboro for doing that. Now, Thomas, it's been a pleasure having a chat with you. You're an absolute legend. And, and I, I, I just want to stress that here is a kid. You're not really a kid. You're an adult now. You've got a license. You've got a cool car, right? It's all happening in your, in your world. But you deserve it all because of the effort you've made. And, and um, you're, you're a great bloke. And well done. Thanks for flying the flag uh, for Australian drone races. And, of course, being one of the best in the world. So keep up the good work, my friend. Thank you so much. You're too kind. And thank you for having me here today and oh, no, always hanging out and uh, making cool conversations. So I really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks, Thomas. I hope you enjoyed that chat with my friend Thomas Bitmarter, an excellent guy. And he's a professional. He's really professional. He knows how to perform on a podcast, on a video, on the world stage. Uh, everybody loves uh, the pint-sized rocket, Thomas Bitmarter. So a big thank you to Thomas for joining me. And I really, I, I can't wait to see him again and uh, spend some time with him and his dad because they are awesome people. So jump on board. Don't forget to follow uh, Thomas on social media channels, the BMS web team uh, comprising of Thomas and Paul Bitmarter. Jump onto their YouTube channel as well. You won't be disappointed. Now, I've got a bit of a product feature. If uh, you've been following the Flat Out RC flat, uh, Facebook page and Instagram, you would have noticed that I recently recorded a video on a transmitter, the Jetty DS24 uh, transmitter from the guys at Jetty Model out in uh, Czechoslovakia, I believe. Now, the Jetty DS24 is really a very, very, very high end, the Ferrari of transmitters, you could say. It ain't a cheap unit, but it does offer you top quality performance and all the little things that you'd expect from a, a 3000 Aussie dollar kind of transmitter. So anyway, let's get into it. It's a DS24, 24 channel uh, radio, as the name suggests. Uh, that's plenty. So we're really looking at things, uh, models that need a lot of channels and or uh, models that involve a fair bit of mixing and things like that, like uh, top end gliders, competition gliders big scale aircraft, aerobatic aircraft, jets, that kind of thing. It's a beautiful radio for that kind of thing. Uh, resolution, 4,096 steps, so it's fast. Telemetry, of course, and we'll talk more about the telemetry later, but there's a lot there. Uh, it's got a great lithium-ion battery in it, 12 hours. Um, Runtime on that, so multiple sessions off the one charge. 
Now, it uses, the Jetty guys use their own uh, 2.4 gigahertz sort of protocol, duplex 2.4 gigahertz, they call it. Uh, but this radio also has a backup 900 megahertz um, connection as well. So they're trying to build in redundancy into these systems, and that's what it's all about. We just don't want the radios to go off the air. So they're doing that. Now, the feel in the hand is amazing. It's a heavy radio. It's because uh, it's, it's got a metal case, and uh, it does add to the weight, but it's a solid quality feel. It, when you see one, they look quite boxy, but in your hand, they are beautiful. They really sit in your hand nicely. And the gimbals are amongst the best gimbals I've ever felt in my life. They are silky smooth. I'd love to have one of these radios just for the gimbals. Uh, they are just, it felt, I, I felt like I'd be a better pilot with those gimbals. <laughs> they're, they're magnetic hall sensing gimbals, which we are seeing on other radios now, but there's just something about them that it was just nice. It was just nice and smooth and the tension was perfect. And of course, you can adjust tension on these kind of radios, but uh, it was just, just perfect. I really, really loved it. So, the fit and finish of the uh, of the radio is absolutely awesome. Now, telemetry is where Jetty really have got a strong point. They've been doing it for a long time and have been the leader. Um, they capture a lot of information uh, in their receivers, send it back to the transmitter. So there's a lot of different things that you can uh, you can track, like you know, on a jet fuel usage uh, interface into your ECUs for your motors, so you can get all your RPMs and all you know your heat and all that kind of stuff. Uh, variometers, GPS, you name it. They've got a telemetry unit for it that feeds all the way back to the radio. Now, the radio does have a, a, a quite a large screen and that it's a color screen that sits at the top of the radio, which I think is a great idea. It, it doesn't look too cool, but it is the best idea because if, you, if you've got telemetry, you need to look at the screen. Uh, it, looking down in between your hands when they have put their screen at the bottom of the transmitter, it's not that great. Even when you're programming, your eye level, you don't have to you know, squint down and look at the bottom of your transmitter. You're looking higher up. Which I think makes a lot of sense. Okay, there's a voice activation with this um, in the radio. So if with a lot of telemetry stuff, if you, all your alarms and everything can be triggered to, to go to a voice. Now, it has an integrated microphone with voice recognition capability. Uh, so use the integrated microphone Using the integrated microphone, you can easily prepare your own audio files. So that means you can record your own voice to have the alerts. I'd probably have, you know, Andrew Sills a legend or something like that. Or if I'm flying with my friend Dominic Aisu from the Peanut Gallery from last week's podcast, I'd, I'd just have a little button to flick and say peanut um, every time he was with me whilst he was flying to annoy him. But uh, you've got all that kind of functionality, um, integrated microphone with that voice recognition. Voice recognition, I think, is a massive... I, I, oh, my radio doesn't have voice recognition, but I want voice recognition. I want to know how long have I been flying for and how long have I got to go before I need to land? Because it's always the biggest thing that I need to know is, you know, I often say to people, well, how long have I got? Because I'm trying to judge where I'm at in my flight. But uh, if I've got that audio recording, then... Uh, that's great. You can even have an FM tuning. You can listen to the radio through it if you want. It will play. There's an audio player. So it will play MP3 and wave sound formats, which I've seen uh, good old Paul McCarthy. Shout out to Paul McCarthy. Good jet flyer down here in um, in Victoria. Has one of these radios and he always plays music whilst he flies. And I think it's such a good thing because it keeps you relaxed or give you a bit of rhythm to fly to or something like that. And uh, so you can play music files. Uh, you can add uh, photos of your model to the screen, use background images if you want. Looks a bit poxy, but anyway, you can add a photo so that you can't be mistaken which model you're actually flying if you can't see it. 
what else? Uh, LCD display, 3.5 inch. So reasonable size really for a uh, model transmitter. You don't want to get too big or unbalance the, uh, the, the thing. You know what I really love about this radio as well? They say easy charging. Right, you you do connect the power adapter directly to the uh, transmitter, but it will tell you on the screen how much it's charged. Now I've got a Spectrum DX18 radio, and you don't know. You just know that it's when the light changes color from orange to blue, or something like that, or the light goes out, then it's charged. But with this, you know exactly where you're up to with your um, charging cycle. Uh, multiple integrated antennas in the radio which you would expect. So all in all, we're looking at a high-end, very high-end radio with a proven, reliable, secure 2.4 gig duplex system, as Jetty call it, uh, with the backup redundancy, 24 channels, beautiful feel in the hand, great build quality. Uh, it, the interface to, to, to set models up, you know, people have said to me in the past that Jetties are pretty hard to, to set up, but it looked quite intuitive to me, to be honest. I don't know whether this, this is a newer generation maybe, but... It didn't look that complex to set up, you know, mixes and things like that. But like I say, with every radio, there is always a learning curve. There's nothing that's 100% intuitive, uh, but it seemed to be fine. So I'd be happy owning one. Receivers, there's plenty of receivers. They actually do a very good range of receivers with, you know, those uh, redundant sort of systems where you can have two batteries going through, like the PowerSafe receivers that Spectrum have got. So uh, they're right up there with that receiver offering all the way down to really micro receivers suitable for DLGs, that kind of thing. You know, it'd be interesting. You could use this radio for DLG use. It's just a little bit heavy in the hand, but you know, you'd probably get used to it, I suppose. But um, yeah, would I have one? Hell yeah. But $3,000, $3,000, $3,200 Aussie dollars, it's not a cheap unit, but you are getting the duck's guts really of uh, of transmit it so take a look they are available at model flight modelflight.com.au uh, they bring them in sell them for their retail arm and uh, they have got stock of some of the models i think these 24 they might have some of them they do come in various colors they might not have they had a bezel sort of you can get them in different colors but uh, they might not have all the colors but they're they're in stock i think they just got stock of the, uh, the ds12 which is the 12 channel version which by the way can be upgraded as well to have i think come in 16 channels or more but the DS24, take a look at it. High-end transmitter for the discerning aero modeler available at modelflight.com.au. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, that's another episode done and dusted. A big thank you to Thomas Bitmarter for, for joining me and having a chat. Really enjoyed his company and uh, hope you did as well. Uh, so a couple of new products for you to take a look at there. You've got the extra. You take a look at the Jetty radio if you're in the market for a Jetty transmitter. We've got more coming. Uh, I'm still lining up guests. I've got a couple more lined up. Actually, by the end of this week, I might have three interviews in the bag. It could be a record. Oh, no, I'll probably have at least two. So I'm ahead of the curve. So my interviews, I film sort of a week to two weeks prior to launch. Uh, so I can keep the flow happening. People have said, oh, how are you doing it every week? Well, I'm enjoying it. One, there's no money in it. Unless you want to sponsor this podcast. I would love a sponsor. But uh, I am enjoying it and I hope you are as well. Uh, look, do me a favor. If you want me to keep this going, I need to get listeners. Tell your fellow aero modelers. Word of mouth is the best form of marketing. Sit there and tell your friends about the Peanut Gallery podcast. 
even if you didn't like it, just learn how to lie effectively. You're, you're helping a good cause, which is the Flat Out RC podcast cause. And it, by the way, whilst you're at it, don't forget Flat Out RC Instagram, Flat Out RC podcast. Uh, if you want to listen to all these podcasts, don't forget subscribe uh, or jump onto the flatoutrc.com.au website. I'm putting them all up there every week. But stay tuned, there's plenty more coming, and I really do hope you're enjoying it. If you've got any suggestions, send me a message, get onto the flatoutrc.com.au website, get onto the contact page, and send me a message through there or via Facebook or Instagram, whatever you want. Thanks once again for joining me, and we'll be back next week. Thanks. Thanks.